Now, if you have your Bibles this morning, I would uh, like you to open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. As I was preparing this, not everybody knows what are the Beatitudes. I actually grew up in a church where the Beatitudes were quite well known, and naturally it's found in Matthew chapter 5 at the very beginning, at the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus, in this case, begins his message in probably one of the most famous messages that Jesus preaches, starts out with these Beatitudes. When you look at Matthew chapter 5, it says this, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated with his disciples, came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying... Now, he begins with the Beatitudes, which... To me, this was a, just a sermon. When you talk about cliffhangers, this entire sermon to me was a cliffhanger because they were so astonished at the message that Jesus delivered here. Just several things right before we get into this. There's several things in this passage. Let me just draw to your attention. As Jesus begins this message, this is the first time as Jesus began to taught that he used the word Father in reference to God No one had ever done that before, and I'm certain as certain people listened to him, it would have took their breath away. What are you doing using that name for God? It's in this message where Jesus said, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, you give to him the other. Don't you think that sounds a little strange, not only in that day, but in our day as well? Numbers of things that Jesus said were were just enlightening. He said, I want you to pray for your enemies. That was an unheard concept as well to these Jewish people. But maybe the most amazing statement that he made was found in this very passage when he says in verse 20, He says, for I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to think about that just for a little bit. Place yourself in that crowd, not understanding the concept of God's righteousness, only man's righteousness. And what Jesus was saying to this crowd was this, think of the most spiritual and religious people that you can think of. That would be a good exercise maybe for us to do if we only knew the righteousness of man. Maybe we could think of someone like Billy Graham. Or maybe someone like John MacArthur. Or or maybe someone like Pastor Pat. And if Jesus was here and he would say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of those men, you're not going into the kingdom. Would that sit very well with you if you heard that? Can you imagine how it took the breath away of these original listeners when Jesus delivered this message? You see... The people, after he finished this message, it says at the end of chapter 7, they were astonished at his teachings. Now, the Beatitudes are at the very beginning, and that's where I'd like to take us to, to start with, because they're very, very interesting. 
Now let me just again talk a little bit about these Beatitudes. Notice it starts in verse 3, and in most translations it uses the word blessed, makarios in the Greek, which speaks about happiness and contentment. Now in the Greek culture of that day, Homer, the Greek historian and philosopher, would say that wealthy men are happy. Happy are the wealthy, he would say. When you looked at Plato, he would say, the successful man in business, happy is that man. Pretty much how we might use the word happy in our everyday culture as well. But watch what Jesus does with these Beatitudes, because in reality, the word happy comes from a Greek word that brings out the idea, at least in the biblical sense, of an inward contentment that is not based on outside circumstances. That was totally new to anybody of that day and often in our day as well. So he talks about the happiness. Now, as you look at this, we will start to talk about each of these Beatitudes. We won't spend a lot of time on them. But the very first one is happy are the poor. Can you imagine as the original crowd, happy are the poor? That doesn't seem to go, it makes sense. It doesn't seem to make sense. And yet Jesus here, as he teaches these Beatitudes, is making a very significant understanding to the people of that day. Now something else I want you to think about as you think about these Beatitudes. These are not a list of do's and don'ts here. That's not what they are. They're not imperatives in the Greek. They are not commands at all. They are descriptors. You know, some people say in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel is never preached, and yet really it's preached almost in all of the pages. And this is what is going on, because in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, I think after you finish these Beatitudes, there's over 60 imperatives or commands. But at the beginning, that's not true, because Jesus is trying to lay the foundation here of what a genuine person would be like that's going to enter the kingdom. He's describing the inner qualities of the person that's going to enter the kingdom. We might say this is a descriptive of a saved person is the idea here. That's why they're here. Jesus is saying even the first one, happy are the poor or blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. And sort of telling us how to be saved, he's really describing the heart of the person that is going to enter that kingdom. That's what he's doing here as he begins this, because that was the big interest. The Messiah comes. The kingdom's going to be set up. Who's going to enter into that kingdom? And it's pretty applicable today as you look at the Middle East and see what's going on in Egypt and other places. I hope you understand that the kingdom of God could be very near. Who's going to enter that kingdom? And that's what he's endeavoring to do here. Now, the poor in spirit is the idea. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When we think of that, 
the Jewish people of that day thought that spiritually it all depended on how you followed the commandments. That was their understanding. Now, they had numbers of, of laws that to us would sound ridiculous when you think of keeping the law in order to have spiritual worth. Here's some of the, the, the laws as they broke them down on the Sabbath. For instance, they said you should not look in a mirror on the Sabbath because you might be tempted to pluck out a gray hair and then you would be reaping. That would violate one of their laws. I wouldn't have any gray hair, so I don't need to look at the mirror anyway. <clears throat> Second one, a donkey could be led out of the stable on the Sabbath, but the harness and the saddle had to be placed on him the day before. If the lights were on on the Sabbath, when the Sabbath, Sabbath came... You could not blow them out. And if they had not been lit, then you could not light them. That would violate the Sabbath. It was unlawful to move furniture on the Sabbath. There was an exception to that in that you were allowed to move a ladder on the Sabbath, but you only could move it four steps. Anything beyond that, you'd violate the Sabbath. It was not permitted to wear false teeth on the Sabbath. This is a little bit later updating as you come through the ages. You were not allowed to eat radishes. Oh, you were allowed to eat radishes on the Sabbath, but you were warned against dipping them into salt because you might leave them in the salt too long and pickle them, and that would be considered Sabbath-breaking. It was fine to spit on a rock on the Sabbath, but you could not spit on the ground because that made mud. Mud was mortar. That was work. All of these things, we would say, this is ridiculous. In fact, it goes so far in the day in which we live that in the refrigerator, you actually undo the light on the inside of the refrigerator because, because of that, you don't want to open the door because if the light comes on, that violates the Sabbath. So get the light off so when you open it, no light comes on. You say, that sounds ridiculous. But see, the Jewish people considered themselves rich or poor depending on how they followed these laws. Now, we're a little bit better than that. We have our own system. And uh, as you think about it, maybe the Jews of that day would look at us and they would find some things that are peculiar about us as well. They would notice, hey, I noticed a number of these people, they don't always come to church, they just come every so often. And our response, well, we're good people, God's okay with that. Well, we've noticed that numbers of the people in your congregation really don't give to God the way we think the law teaches. Well, God understands that. Hey, hey, we notice the people here, they like to eat. We do like to eat, don't we? And they don't seem to have any problem with overeating. And I've watched some of the movies that they've seen. Are those acceptable to God? Well, yeah, we think God is okay with that. Well, how do you know what God is okay with? Well, it's just sort of what we decide. Oh, then you sort of create a God that is okay with everything that you do and declare it good? Now let me ask you, who would laugh more? Us at the Jews or the Jews at us? Now Jesus comes along and he begins to teach. And he says this, here are the people that are going to enter the kingdom. So he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor conveys a continual state of utter poverty. That's what it talks about. 
In fact, John MacArthur breaks down the word and it said, this is the lowest form of the words on poverty that you have in scripture. And it, it doesn't mean just poor, it means begging poor. It's not just a poor person that doesn't have much, it's a person that begs because they don't have anything at all. Jesus is describing here the heart of the one that's going to enter the kingdom. So notice, they have absolutely nothing to give to God. So they rely completely on God's willingness to care for them. That is a descriptor of the person who's going to enter the kingdom. They have nothing to offer God. It's a lot different to where the Jews were at, and it's a lot different where most Americans are at as well. Because most of the time, we think we are okay spiritually. But we're really not. The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. The Bible says that even the righteousness that we do accomplish is nothing more than filthy rags before God We have really nothing to offer him at all. And it's only the person that understands that is the one that's going to enter the kingdom. It's like the two men that went out to pray. One a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee thought he had a lot to offer God. The tax collector said, I have nothing but be merciful. And Jesus is saying, that's the one that enters the kingdom. That's what Jesus said. Blessed are the bankrupt spiritually, for they are the ones, for theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Totally different than what the Jews thought. In fact, it comes back to an, you know, an old song, um, Rock of Ages, one of the verses, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, there's people that are down and out and spiritually bankrupt, but they never run to God. There are people that run to God, but they feel like they're okay as they come to God. Those people aren't going to be inheritors of the kingdom of heaven. It's the people who realize they have nothing to offer God, and they run to God to Him for their righteousness, for their acceptance. Those are the only ones that describes the heart of the person that is genuinely going to enter the kingdom. Now the second one, which seems almost ironic, Jesus said, happy, as you look at it, it said, blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. And it's really the idea of happy are the sad. You say, that doesn't make any sense at all. But to the genuine believer, it does. Happy are those that mourn. You know, as you go through this, this almost looks like a depiction of losers. But in reality, in Jesus' mind, these are the qualities of the ones that will actually enter the kingdom. Now, when you talk about happy are those that mourn, there's a number of things that the genuine believer mourns about. They mourn over their own sins. They're aware of them. In fact, if you're truly a child of God, have a converted heart, you will be more aware of your sins than the world is aware of their sins. 
Peter wept bitterly over his sin. David wept deeply over his sin. In fact, it's interesting when you look at Daniel, one of the most righteous men in all of Scripture in Daniel chapter 9, he numbers of times talks about we who have violated and rebelled against God. He was clearly aware of that. So there is agony over our own sin. I picked out this quote that I thought might help us a little bit. When we laugh at the world's crude and immoral jokes, even though we do not retell them, when we are entertained by sin, even though we do not indulge in it, when we smile at ungodly talk, even though we do not repeat the words, to joke about divorce, to make light of brutality, to be intrigued by sexual immorality, is to rejoice when we should be mourning, to be laughing when we should be crying. That verse captures, doesn't it capture often what our heart is like? That's who we are, folks. That's why there's mourning in the inner heart of the genuine believer. Not only do they mourn, they mourn over the sins of the world. The world is in a mess today. You look at what's going on in Egypt. You look in our own country and it's all because of greed, selfishness. It's all there. You look at politicians within our own world and you say they are so corrupt. Folks, we are as corrupt as the politicians that we elect. You take away some of our rights and you see where we would be. We mourn over the sins and how they impact the world. We mourn over the sins that are committed against us. And many of you have been hurt by the wrongs of others. And it causes a heaviness. But maybe even the greatest thing is there's agony in our heart over what sins did to our Savior. I don't know how many of you have seen the Passion of the Christ that came out a number of years ago. As I watched the suffering of Christ, I could not hold back tears. I don't know if you've ever seen it. But the reason that that was there is because when I watched the agony that he went through, I realized my sin was a part of that. It did not make me proud at all. And yet, notice what Jesus says here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn. In fact, and then it says, they will be comforted in that kingdom, those that mourn and are impacted. Yes, there's great hope. They will be comforted. That's what, the, that's what Jesus taught. Now, it is interesting when you look at this, and I do want you to see this, when you look at the Beatitudes in your text, even from verse 4 all the way down to verse 9, it says this now, Blessed are those who mourn for they. And in each case now, in every single one of these Beatitudes, it will start out for they, for they, for they. And you say, why is that important? Because there's an emphatic pronoun here, that is saying, Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they and they alone will be comforted. This isn't optional. Jesus is depicting a converted heart here. 
And so there is mourning within the life of the genuine believer, but with great hope and anticipation that there is great comfort that is going to come. You may experience some of that in this life, but ultimately it'll never be experienced until you enter into the kingdom. What a day that's going to be. But there will be mourning within that. Then the next one, as you look at it, happy are the meek, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. It comes out of Psalm 37, a very powerful psalm that you should read because this psalm is directly the opposite of what the Pharisees think. They wanted everything now. The meek wait patiently. The weak, the, the meek are those that, that really, as, as you look at it, the meek are the ones who really say about themselves, There is nothing in me that is worth defending. You know, maybe the most beautiful picture of the meek is displayed in the life of David. Let me just just look at these verses when Absalom, his son, rebels against and leads the children of Israel against his father, David. Notice what happens here in this story. This will display meekness for you. When King David came to Barulan, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera. And as he came, he cursed continually, and he threw stones at David. And all the servants of the King David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Now notice the boldness of this man as he curses David to his face with all of David's mighty men around him. And Shimei said as he cursed, Get out! Get out! You man of blood! You worthless man! The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go and overtake and take off his head. But the king said, What do I have to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? David said to Abishai, And to all of his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may the Benjamite leave him alone and let him curse? For the Lord has told him, it may be that the Lord will look upon the wrong to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. You see, David would never defend himself. He was meek in that sense. When you say to Chris Hay, how are things going, Chris? What does he normally say to you? Better than I deserve. That's meekness in that sense. You see, the man that is totally bankrupt, the man is mourning over his own sin and the sin of the world, realizing there's nothing in me worth defending. So my statement is this, as Jesus depicts the genuine person that will enter the kingdom, here's the idea. Thin-skinned Christians 
that are easily offended. Are they Christians at all? I'm not trying to answer that question. All I'm trying to say is when there's a converted heart and you are convinced of those first two qualities that are a part of your life, you realize that half the evil about you has never been told you deserve worse than what you get. That actually should be the attitude of the believer. That's the whole idea. Jesus is depicting the the person that will enter the kingdom. It's very interesting as you go through. Here's the next one. Happy are the hungry. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The term here, when you look at it, blessed are those who hunger for the righteousness is the Greek. That's the idea. We're looking for a righteousness that we don't have And those who see themselves bankrupt and they hunger after righteousness that they don't have and gain that righteousness will clearly have something that they will rejoice in. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, very interesting. If this verse is to you one of the most blessed statements of the whole of Scripture, you can be quite certain you are a Christian. If not, then you had better examine the foundations again. There is within the heart of a believer such a strong desire to have righteousness to cover him and then to be part of a truly righteous kingdom. We long for that. That's what Jesus is saying. That will be true about the genuine believer. That's what Jesus is saying. There will be this hunger and thirst Then the next one, as you look at it, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Happy are the merciful. It says a popular Roman philosopher called mercy the disease of the soul. It was the supreme sign of weakness. Mercy was a sign you did not have what it takes to be a real man, and especially a real Roman Mercy was a sign of weakness that was despised above all other human limitations. That's what the world says. But Jesus actually says, blessed are those that are merciful to others. That's the whole idea. And you know, if you see who you really are, the natural outworking of that is showing mercy to others. As you follow through, the Beatitudes have led us to this point. A merciful person knows that he is spiritually bankrupt before God. He hates that his sin has broken God's heart by nailing his son to the cross, refuses to engage in self-protection, and longs for the only righteousness that will make him acceptable to God. The logic of the Beatitudes suggests you cannot be merciful without those other attributes, but that with them your mercy will never be reduced to a sense of superiority over the weak or a sense of smugness over the generosity of your heart. If our church is made up of truly converted people, then mercy should flow from us to others. That's the idea here. And if our church is not characterized by that, then I would question the salvation of our church life at all. That's what Jesus is saying. And he's saying only those 
Blessed are the merciful, for they and only they. That's the whole idea of all of these. It depicts the inner heart of those that are going to enter the kingdom. And uh, it's a beautiful sight as you go through. Happy are the holy, those that desire to see God. And they will. Blessed are the holy, for they shall see God. And they will in the kingdom. There's so many verses on holiness that we could talk about. I don't have time for those. There are several of them. One in Psalm 51, where God desires truth in the inner parts. The Pharisees had a big cloak of righteousness so everybody could see it. God said, that's not it. I want truth in the very inner being. And that should be true of the true child of God. So happy are the holy. Then the other part that goes with it, then the next one as we bring this, happy are the peacemakers. For they shall be called the sons of God. And and again, you see the progression. Peacemakers are not proud, but poor in spirit. They recognize their own incompetence and gladly depend on God for everything. Peacemakers are not cold to their own sin. They are keenly aware of how destitute and broken sin has made us. Peacemakers do not see themselves as better than anyone else. They are meek. Peacemakers have abandoned their own pursuit of righteousness. They hunger and thirst for the righteousness of Jesus. Peacemakers forgive guilty people and act on the pity they feel for broken people. They get into the messiness of the world because of God's great mercy in the gospel. The peacemakers have pure hearts. They are loyal to God and honest with others. Peacemakers desire peace between God's children, and then they go to the world that knows nothing about peace, announcing to them, this is how you find peace. And again I say, Jesus would say, only these peacemakers will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus is saying. Happy are the harassed, those that find persecution. And and the people of the world will not understand this people. You know, when you think of the attitude of self-reliance in the world today, when people and your kids here at school believe in yourself, have a positive attitude, you can conquer this world. The message like this makes no sense to them. Those are losers that believe like what you're talking about. That's what the world thinks. The religious person says, As you look at it, how is it that you can just call upon God for righteousness? Then why do good at all? Why go to church? Why receive the sacraments? They don't understand this either. And therefore, those that are genuine children of God will actually be harassed by the world for their beliefs. You know, as you look at all of these, As you look at this, does this look like the characteristics of a mighty kingdom in which the Son of God is going to reign? Happy are the poor, happy are the sad, the meek, the hungry, the merciful, the holy, peacemakers, harassed. The world would look at that, that's not a mighty kingdom, that's a kingdom of losers. But that the true child of God, he rejoices in every single one of those. 
and realizes that when God sets up his kingdom, it will be set up with people just like that. And Jesus said, those and only those are going to enter the kingdom. And what a great kingdom it's going to be. Again, these are not mandates. These are not commands. This is the work of the Spirit of God in a heart that genuinely believes. So my question as we bring this, just two applications as we bring it to a close. One, you may be able to tell me, you know, Chuck, I've heard the gospel and I prayed a prayer when I was younger or I prayed a prayer when I was older and that settles everything. If it was genuine, I agree. But my other question is then, if that really was true in your life, can you look at all of these and see the reality in your heart of all of those things coming to pass? Because I would have far more confidence in that than in any prayer you prayed. And I hope you see that's what Jesus is doing. He's not trying to say do's and don'ts. He's just trying to say these things will characterize the true child of God. The second thing is, if this is really at work within our hearts, we should be a people that is zealous to show mercy to others, to love others, We should be a people that is zealous to share the message of peace with a world that knows nothing about peace and harmony. That should be what our church is made up of if we're made up of converted people that are going to enter the kingdom. And I pray that as you look at those and as you look at what Jesus taught here, Your heart inwardly is rejoicing because you see, wow, those things really are happening within me. And you know, the whole idea of being spiritually bankrupt, it's a continual state. We're continually bankrupt. We're not just bankrupt at the beginning. We're still bankrupt. We still need the Lord so much every day in everything that we do. And I pray, and you might say the cliffhanger, how did these people respond to this? Because it's time to close, I won't go into that, but Jesus said, wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many there are that go that way. Narrow is the way to life. And within this same message, Jesus said, and Pat has said a number of times, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, look at the things that I've done. I never knew you. Depart from me. In Jesus' day, this message was not embraced by the majority, but by the minority. Are you a part of that minority today? Because it's the same. I pray that you are, but if not, please talk to one of us so that you would know for sure that you're a part of this kingdom that's going to come very soon. Because that's our desire to help people enter this kingdom and to enjoy all the things that Jesus has spoken of here in these Beatitudes. Let's pray.